Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report, and welcome to this week's Money Cafe. And joining me this week is Giles Parkinson, who's the founder and editor of Renew Economy, which is a excellent website about uh, climate change and everything all about renewable and the renew economy, as it says. But uh, Giles was also the founding editor of Climate Spectator, which was a spin-off from Business Spectator back in uh, 2009. Giles, I thought a good way to start would be just to get you to talk about the sweep of history that you've been through. I mean, even before Climate Spectator, you wrote a column for the Australian called Green Chip for a while, didn't you? Yes, uh, <laughs> thanks for having me on, Alan. And um, yes, Green Chip. It was um, it's a column that actually lasted for about three years, and I'm I kind of described myself at, at the time as the um, as the Australians or News Limited's voluntary carbon offset. I was quite amazed that they actually sort of tolerated what I used to write at the time. But um, we're now right. we're, in, <laughs> we're now seeing their mission net zero. They're at least um, pretending to take um, these issues seriously, and um, although I still kind of doubt their motives, but that's probably another thing. But yeah, look, um, going back even further in time, I was at the Financial Review, I was a business editor there, I was a deputy editor, I led their online push um, just over two decades ago until they came to a moment when some of their key executives saw their KPIs and they thought, well, if they can close the website, maybe the internet might go away. So they did, but it didn't. And their website um, is back, but um, I went on to sort of forge a career as a freelance journalist, started yeah. writing, and I think my moment was I actually wrote an article for the old Bulletin magazine. It was their lead article, and it was about the impact of John Howard's decision to can what was then the mandatory renewable energy target. And this is going back 2005, 2006. It was a very modest target, but the fossil fuel generators just thought, oh, this, this is just too awful. It's going to have enormous damage to our business. And they basically impressed upon the government at the time to close it down. And Vestas was building factories, and there's a whole bunch of companies that have been set up to sort of, you know, early plays in this clean energy transition and they kind of all had to fold or go away and look offshore. So um, it was an interesting story and that kind of triggered my inner greenie and um, made me realise that there was actually an awful lot to write both in the business and environment sense about the clean energy transition. You were also writing some pieces for uh, uh, Business Spectator after we started in 2007 and um, were trying to get me to launch a specialist climate or renewable energy publication, and finally we did um, the end of two thousand and nine. But what we didn't know, of course, that was that the, that was basically the absolute moment that Tony Abbott took over from Malcolm Turnbull, and things changed completely at the time. At the same time as we launched Climate Spectator. Yeah, look, I remember. Yes, and and, and um, I, I was over at the Copenhagen conference, and um, that was just enormously frustrating being there and just sort of seeing this sort of cluster of you know disasters that that occurred at the time. Um, well, the, the Copenhagen uh, conference was December two thousand and nine, which was a disaster. And at the same time, at the same time, Abbott, uh, well, Joe Hockey actually challenged Malcolm Turnbull, and Abbott won. Yeah, I know, I know. It was just so depressing and just looking in the faces of the Australian um, politicians um, at the time because they kind of knew that they were, you know, things were things were going all right and just the frustration at the Copenhagen. Look, um, it was a disaster and Abbott um, was a disaster for Australian politics um, and has been a disaster ever since because I don't actually think we've moved forward from there. 
what they didn't stop though was the technology advances um and those are the things which now even allow sort of Morrison government to even sort of declare a target for net zero emissions by 2050, as unambitious as that may sound now. But geez, if we went back 10 years ago, just the very thought of such a thing, um, you know, um, yeah, it, it just it just wouldn't have been considered. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, would you, how do you reflect on this period? I mean, there's this whole kind of time that's gone on in Australia's position. I mean, do you think it's simply because? Really, Australia is uh, essentially a fossil fuel company, uh, a fossil fuel exporter. Look, I think it's probably it. Um, I've struggled to, you know, I've thought about this many times, and I've just struggled with the rhetoric and the politics um, and some of the stupid things that are said um, by the government and and by other politicians, you know, you just, the, the reflections on wind energy and solar and batteries. And just this week we had a Nationals MP trying to claim to us, um, well, last week we had, uh, we had Keith Pitt telling us um, um, that um, solar doesn't generate power at night. And um, you just think, oh, well, yeah, okay, get that. The sun goes down every evening, but he just thought he'd sort of, um, <laughs> sort of come across a major discovery. Um, this week you had a Nationals MP telling us that wind power doesn't um, generate at night as either, and just some of this nonsense. And I've often just wondered, is this because we are a fossil fuel company and we're just sort of so captured by the power of the fossil fuel industry that it's kind of sort of distorted our thought, or is there something sort of more fundamental happening here about ideology, about acceptance of science, about sort of um, just, you know, not accepting sort of the reality of um, sort of technologies and, and facts? Um, is it driven by donations? Um, is it a fear of change? And honestly, I mean, after, despite having written about this for 15 years and being sort of heavily involved on a day to day basis since, um, since the launch of Climate Spectator, I, I, I just can't settle on it. Um, I'm, I'm still as mystified today as I was back then. So, what do you think of the, this week's announcements from the government? Look, it's, Really frustrating, actually, Alan. Um, we know that net zero by 2050 was the very minimum that was um, expected of the Australian government. There is actually no effort whatsoever to increase the 2030 target. Um, we found out in the last couple of days now that Australia has actually refused a to join a global pledge um, led by the UK and Europe and the US to reduce methane emissions. And of course, that's a key part of the emissions that come from agriculture and the LNG industry. And it's even more frustrating because despite all the spin and the sophistry and the slogans that have been happening at the political level, and that's pretty frustrating to see on, on one hand, and okay, that's kind of Scotty from marketing, and you, we've come to expect that. You actually look at the details of the document, and they've made this major leap. They've actually accepted the change that is happening despite them. Some of the most extraordinary things you look into, you find in that document, the acceptance by the government that New South Wales is going to flip within 10 years from being the most coal-dominated state in Australia and quite possibly the world. I mean, maybe Poland and Hungary and other places beat it, but it's now like 80% coal. And the prediction is is going to flip to 84% renewables by the end of the decade. And that's because you've got three or four of its five coal generators exiting the system. They now accept that 
as part of their baseline case. Well, not only not only that, they take credit for it. Well, they do. Why they're taking credit for it, but they'll take no, credit but for it. Of course not. No, but they, but they, you know they're saying they're making that a part of their um, they're part of their ambition, their, their vision, or you know their, their their target. Well, that's right. Yeah, I mean, look, we've got to say that the credit for the New South Wales flip to renewables lies entirely with Matt Keane and the New South Wales Liberal government, and Matt Keane's ability not just to sort of see the possibilities of renewables and how to devise a plan to incorporate them by creating renewable energy zones. Um, pretty much a centralised system, which has got some people right, but still it's it's a plan, but also to bring the nationals on board and to sort of bring all parties on board. So it's not a politically controversial um, transition. Um, but look, the, you know, the, the coalition government will take credit for everything. They've just spent $13 million on an advertising campaign um, talking about their transition to renewables. Um, what's really interesting about it is it promotes all the uh, technologies <laughs> and the policies that they tried to destroy. I mean, they wanted to end the Sea Clean Energy Finance Corporation. They wanted to kill the Renewable Energy Target, the Australian Renewable Energy, Energy Agency and the Climate Change Authority. And uh, Yet all these things are the, are the institutions and the policies that have made the emission reductions that have been achieved happen. And they're quite happy to, play, to claim credit for that and spend $13 million um, doing so. But... The other thing I just wanted to point out, though, was the um, um, not just the sort of um, the recognition of the things that are happening. They're now focusing on low-cost solar as the key to this, not just the energy transition, but the transition to a green economy. And they're now talking about solar, uh, uh, a levelised cost of electricity of solar of just $15 Australian a megawatt hour, which is about... Another, we've seen a 90% reduction in solar over the last decade. What they're talking about now is another 70 or 80% reduction in the cost of solar. These are things which the coalition has never spoken about before. Um, it's still not really speaking about it publicly. It's just basically contained in documents. But basically, it's a recognition um, from all the views of the experts that this is possible, that this is where we're heading, this is the key to our future, low-cost renewables, the reboost in manufacturing, the reduction in emissions. But the frustrating thing is that having admitted that and acknowledged that these technologies are there, they can't bring themselves to do anything to accelerate their targets and to implement the policies that would help guarantee that because you can get to $15 a megawatt hour solar partly through lower cost of um, materials and manufacturing, but the other key thing is the cost of capital and the perception of risk. And as long as Australia doesn't have a coherent policy, the international managers of these trillions of dollars of capital looking for green homes are going to think that Australia is a riskier place, it's going to apply an increased cost of capital, and that's going to make it really hard to bring down those key costs. Well, speaking of capital, um, uh, you've obviously been a financial journalist for a long time, um, including starting on the AFR. I mean, um, a lot of what you write about in renewable in, in renew economy is how to invest in this. What's the, you know, what's what's actually going on with the economy, and also uh, how people should invest. So I wonder, a lot of our investors probably want to know how how should they go about taking part with their own money in this transformation. What do you think? 
What's the best it's way to do it? I mean, yeah, look, the best advice I'd give was to go back five years' time and buy Tesla shares. Um, but <laughs> that's, not, um, that's not possible, and, and I didn't do it, despite writing about it um, all the time. But I'm, I'm not a very active investor. I think it's actually quite hard to um, to sort of pick winners and things in the energy transition mainly because we don't quite understand what the business models are going to be in five or ten years' time and who's going to get that right. So at the moment, our big opportunities are in the sort of big established utilities, the AGL, the Origins, um, international shares, I guess Energy Australia is listed, but but in China. Um, a lot of the smaller renewable-focused companies have actually sort of disappeared from the market now. Um, Infogen Energy has been taken off the market, been bought out. New Energy Solar, um, well, actually, I think it's still there, but it's sort of packed up its Australian operations. Um, there's um, there's why is, why is there Why are there so few companies listed that, you know, that, do, that do renewable energy? It is, it is an actually quite a striking fact. Well, it is, especially when you look at the electric vehicle industry and everyone's trying to sort of go get listed because they're doing these um, these so-called SPACs and, 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 and sort of trying to attract capital that way. Um, yeah, look, it's, it's a bit frustrating, actually, because it makes the electricity industry even more um, hard to um, – less visible than, than, than it is already. Um, I guess it's because all of these – a lot of these firms that have been bought out have been bought out by big international or private players. So Andrew Forrest, Mindaroo has brought out um, one company, uh, Windlab, um, Iberdrola, which is probably one of the biggest, if not the biggest energy companies in the world, Spanish base, has brought out Infogen Energy and taken it private. And um, and Tilt, uh, which was a New Zealand-based company with significant Australian operations, has been brought out by the sort of the collection of funds that AGL works with called Power. Um, and I guess they just... Um, I guess they just feel happier with it being in in in, in private hands or a, a subsidiary of of a vast company rather than the sort of the vagary, vagaries of, of of listed. One thing there, one and, thing there is a sorry, go on. No, no, I was just saying. I mean, it could be just the perception that share values can be influenced by political risk, and while Australia does not have a coherent policy or even a coherent energy um, market policy. Then those things, you know, risk is priced in and, and sort of devalues those shares. So that could well be part of it. One thing we've got a lot of is lithium mining companies. What do you think of them? I don't know enough about lithium mining companies to really give um, a big boost. What I do know is that Australia has pretty much all the minerals needed for this sort of battery revolution, be it in battery storage or in electric vehicles, and it's just got a fantastic opportunity, which I, I, I think we're now actually starting to, to, to realise and accept. So it's not just in lithium, it's in cobalt, it's in nickel, it's in copper. I was fascinated to see BHP's presentation a couple of weeks ago when they made a commitment to power Olympic Dam Mine, one of the biggest in Australia, with 50% renewables. It's going to take power from the new Port Augusta Renewable Energy Park, which is the biggest hybrid renewable project in Australia. And it had these really powerful graphs about the 
the demand for minerals and particularly for copper, both in the transition to renewables, four times as much copper needed per wind turbine and solar module than in thermal generation, and four times as much copper needed in an electric vehicle than sort of a petrol or diesel car. So they see where the transition's going. So copper is the big thing. Nickel's going to be a big thing. But there's a huge opportunity in lithium and cobalt. I know enough about the lithium industry to know that it's been up and down. Um, but I think what we will see is a lot more mines. We will see processing and refineries at some stage. And I think what we've seen recently from the last couple of months from the likes of... Um, Andrew Forrest and Rio Tinto and BHP and the big switch to these aluminium smelters and Korea Zinc to essentially renewable contracts is that I think we're going to see a lot of green manufacturing happening in Australia. I think we're going to see a resurgence in that. So we're going to see less ore being shipped overseas and more processing done in Australia because we've just discovered that we can and will be able to do this probably got more cheap, cheaper than China can do it. You were talking about Tesla before, and just um, just back to them, uh, their share price uh, went above 1000 bucks the other day, $1,000 US, which, mean, which meant they became, they became a trillion-dollar company for the first time. Um, and uh, I interviewed a bloke named Heath Benke who runs a um, an investment company called Holman Capital, and he's done a huge piece of investment re- research on Tesla and he reckons it's currently worth more than $3,000 and will be worth, this is per share, and will be worth um, $9,000 per share. So he reckons there's still a very long way to go with Tesla. What do you think? Uh, that's $9 trillion, Alan. That's a lot of money. Um, look, <laughs> I, I certainly think that the Tesla story hasn't stopped yet. Um, and maybe if he's right, then there's still an opportunity to buy those shares and make some money. Um I think Tesla has just changed the world completely. It certainly changed the auto industry. It's in the process of changing the electricity industry. Um, it jumped over to, so it's the first manufacturing company to reach the trillion dollar valuation. And it did that on Monday after announcing this huge deal with Hertz, the rental car company, 100,000 EVs. Now that's significant for a bunch of reasons. One, the increase in market value on Monday alone was more than the total market value of Volkswagen and twice the market value of Ford, the big legacy car maker in the US. That just shows the pace of change that we're dealing with here. Yeah. The fact that they've the fact that they've got done this deal with Hertz is hugely significant. Hertz would have done done this. I mean, I know they have gone bust once, so maybe they're not perfect, but they would have done a fair bit of research um, on the ability of Tesla and electric vehicles to sort of service their clients and be rental vehicles. It means you've got millions and millions and millions of new drivers being exposed to electric vehicles. I think that's going to accelerate the transition. And getting back to the original valuation of Tesla, I just think they are so far ahead of the legacy car makers. They're already changing the business model for autos. So it's not just about making cars and you know making a bit of money on the actual manufacturer of them and a lot of money on the servicing and, and the ongoing costs and things like that. This is about making a car that becomes a commodity and a product from which you can leverage all these other services, be it ride sharing, be it insurance, uh, be it subscription services for all sorts of different things. 
they're revolutionizing the manufacturing of autos. So the simple scale of what they're actually trying to achieve here, um, like almost just like one big steel thing for, I mean, the, the new Model Y in, in Berlin, half of it just comes in one single molding and that just allows just these huge efficiencies um, in, in manufacturing, manufacturing costs. And, you know, Tesla's the most profitable car company in the world now, even though it sells just a fraction, has just a fraction of the sales. By which you mean it's, its profit margin is is the Profit greatest. margin, absolutely. And that's true. I mean, that's one of the very interesting things about Tesla, and it's as partly because it's such a, an efficient manufacturer. Yeah, it's, it's rethought the whole process of, of, of manufacturing. So the opportunity is there for it to actually deliver a low-cost car, um, it's quite remarkable. Now, they've talked about a Tesla 2, um, which might be around about $25,000. Um, Morgan Stanley this week, I wrote a little story about it, was sort of saying, well, there's no reason why they couldn't deliver a $15,000 car. Pretty basic, little city running around, but just basically a, a car with some of the whiz-bang technologies that go along, with, you know, which, which they can leverage subscriptions. Imagine if they just did that. There's absolutely no way the major car makers can compete on that sort of production and that sort of cost. So they're going to be monolithic, and I'm, I'm not quite too sure where the rest of the car manufacturers fit in over the long term. Um, they're, going to be fighting them, they're going to be fighting amongst themselves for the scraps, I think. Just on another couple of companies, and perhaps a downside, I'm just wondering, what do you think of um, the future of AGL and Origin? Do you think they'll make it? I don't know. Um Mainly because I'm not too sure how they've thought about the um, their exit. Well, AGL has obviously thought about it a little bit because they're now trying to split the company into good and bad, sort of following on the footsteps of what's happened in the US to some extent, but also particularly in Europe, get the bad assets into one thing and that, that like some sort of die, some sort of miserable or slow death and extract as much value as they can and then try to put what they think are the good assets into a new company. The big problem is... And the, and the managers will admit this, and well, not loudly, but they'll admit it privately, is that they're struggling to know what the business model of the future looks like. They're facing immense competition. They've got the big oil companies coming into the electricity market now, the the um, Iberdrollers, the Shells, the um, NL Green Powers. Um, they've got Tesla coming into the market. They're going to have other people coming into the market, people who actually do customer service possibly better than Australian utilities have done. I mean, all they've ever done is basically sell a, send a bill every couple of months, and that's usually been very high and a bit of a nasty surprise. So the key is going to be in the software. It's you know, I, I think we'll probably see the electricity industry to a certain extent follow what Tesla's done to the auto industry, um, and it's still not entirely clear where we end up with that, but um, <laughs> we certainly know it's a big change. So... So judging their ability to um, to adapt to this and to make money in this new world is going to be really interesting. I mean, the greatest asset they've got at the moment is the regulatory capture over the institutions and the rulemaking and things like that. And that's why these all these rules and the laws of the national electricity market um, have been so slow to change. Um, so that's their primary asset at the moment. Um, I'm not too sure that incumbency is going to be much benefit to them sort of going down the track. Mm. One of the things we do in this podcast, Giles, is answer listeners' questions. And um, we actually just have one this week. And I thought I'd read it out because it's quite nice, it's quite an interesting question. Uh, it's from Mark. And he says, we're often told 
that the share market and property returns similar percentage gains over the long term, often quoted 7 to 10% annualised return. Uh, but I presume it's without accounting for leverage. Is it true then that if those returns do hold, that over the long term and on average you stand to make a lot more in capital gains from an investment property rather than shares, as you can more reasonably make use of higher leverage, leaving aside even the benefits of negative gearing? Um, Well, yes, that's true, Mark. Uh, You can borrow 80% of an investment property, uh, but only 50% of shares. So you can, even if you decide to, take out a margin loan to buy shares, and not many people do, to be honest. Most people just buy shares. Um, but everyone everyone uh, borrows to buy an investment property. Um, yeah, you definitely make longer and more over the long term. The, re- the reason that people are attracted to the share market is because occasionally you can come up with Tesla or Afterpay and make 100 times your money. And so <laughs> that's, that's the – what do you think, Giles? Oh look, I'm I'm, I'm not really. Um, I'm, I I don't know enough about this to 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 judge. I've actually kind of stayed away from sort of investing in in stock markets much. To uh, I've probably missed out on on a big bonanza and um and and, and uh, um, but yeah no I just uh, yeah fair um, enough. I don't know enough, don't know enough about it. Well, look, that's it for Money Cafe today. Thanks very much for listening, everyone, and thanks very much for joining us, Giles. It's been really, really fascinating and great to talk to you again. Thanks for having me here, Um, Alan. Now, if you've got any questions, please put them uh, into the Money Cafe at eurekareport.com.au and we'll get to them next week. And so until next week, I'm Alan Kohler, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report, and I've been talking to Giles Parkinson, who is the founder and editor of Renew Economy. 